This morning we have the Bible's classic example of a confession of sin. Daniel chapter 9 along with Psalm 51 is really where the Bible shows us how to make a true and honest confession. And what you'll find as we read it, I'm sure, is that it's totally different than the apologies or confessions that people commonly offer today. Think for a moment with me about the public apologies we're accustomed to hearing. There's the if confession. If I have hurt anyone or offended anyone by my comments, if I have done so, then I apologize. There's the sorry for the results confession. I'm sorry for the difficulty I've caused the university. This has been very embarrassing for me and my family. I regret that I have given people reason to doubt me and for any harm that I may have done. There's the avoid responsibility confession. Growing up without a father, I never learned how to become a man. Because of the pressures of my life and the high standards I have set for myself, I have not always been able to live up to that high standard. It is a complicated matter, but I sincerely wish it had never happened. There's the I am in process confession. I have learned much through this whole ordeal. I now know myself better and my family is learning to be a family again. This unfortunate incident will serve to make us all better people. And then there's the move on confession. There are many things that I can say to address the allegations and the seeds of mistrust that have been sown among the American people. But the most important thing is to put this dark chapter behind us all and to move on together. All of those sound remarkably familiar because uh, it's kind of par for the course whenever a politician or celebrity or an athlete falls into some scandalous action or commits some crime, they offer one of these public apologies that sound like they've been crafted by a PR firm because they probably have been. It also sounds extremely familiar because we offer these too. We offer these to our spouses to our children, to our friends. And it's very sad, um, pathetic really, how convincing they sound in our ears, but how utterly barren and hollow and fake and false they sound to everyone else. Listen to this confession, because this one, this is remarkable. And this is the, really the best the Bible shows us. Daniel 9.1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, and the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet. So Daniel is reading the prophecies of Jeremiah when he realizes that the 70 years of exile have about been uh, come to completion, or that the desolation, desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, princes and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. 
the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, and all the countries where you have scattered us because of, your, of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. Even though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through the servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the word spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us this great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation, the city that bears your name. We do not make a request of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act for your sake, my God. Do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin, my sin, and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, the man I had seen in the vision earlier, came to me in swift light about the time of the evening sacrifice, so around three o'clock in the afternoon. He instructed me and he said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. I want to give you the interpretation of the dream right now, or the vision right now, because I'm not going to touch on it much in the sermon. But I think what you're going to read here is a magnificent prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ 500 years before Jesus ever came. So he, hear, he talks about 77s or 70 weeks. And when you multiply that out, 70 times 7, that's 490 years. They're broken up accordingly. The first seven years, the first, sorry, the first seven sevens, the first 49 uh, day, years correspond to the issuing of the decree by Cyrus, the king of the Persians, to, to send the Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city uh, and to rebuild the temple. That gets followed by a period of 62 sevens, or 434 years, which likely corresponds to the time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. 
Then there's going to be a final seven where two momentous events takes place. First, the anointed one or the Messiah will be put to death. And second, a ruler will come and destroy the city and the temple again. Now, this last seven is uh, certainly the hardest of the ones to interpret. Um, It certainly seems to us that it takes place with the cutting off of Jesus Christ on the cross and then the later destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Um, I've given you the very quick and short version of this. There's a jillion different interpretations of Daniel's 77s, but I think this is in the ballpark of being right. Verse 24. 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing the people of the ruler will come, uh, sorry the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary the end will come like a flood war will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed but god will confirm a covenant with many for one seven in the middle of the seven he will put an end to sacrifice and offering and at the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that his decreed is poured out on him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 27 verses and an interpretation of a prophecy. That, that was a mouthful. <laughs> and there's a lot there, obviously. Uh, I'm not going to be able to, in 30 minutes, make it through all of the remarkable features of this truly remarkable prayer of confession. But what I want to do is highlight those that stood out to me the most. And the first one is this. I find it highly interesting how Daniel confesses Israel's sins as though they were his own, even though Daniel himself didn't commit these sins. The sins that are cataloged here in Daniel 9 are all the sins of Daniel's father's And his father's fathers, the previous generations of Israelites, all of their crimes and wickedness against the Lord that brought about the exile in the first place, that is what is cataloged. Daniel, he literally, I don't think he actually committed those. He was just a boy. Um, And yet he considers himself guilty and complicit in the sins of his fathers and his father's fathers. We had a very similar issue recently come up in our denomination. Uh, And if you're not familiar with the PCA, the PCA is largely a southeastern geographically based church. It's not to say that we don't have churches all across the country and even in Idaho, uh, but, but the majority of our churches are located in the southeastern part of the United States. And back in the 1950s and 60s in the civil rights era, Virtually every one of our churches segregated worshipers by race, excluded people from church membership on the basis of race, excluded, uh, discouraged interracial marriage, and in some cases even participated in defending white supremacist organizations. Um, 
Two years ago, an overture was presented at our, our denominational uh, annual, uh, full denominational meetings. We call it our general assembly. An overture which call, called for the church to publicly confess our church's sins of overt racism, uh, both our, our, com, our commission of racist sins and our omission of failing. You know the distinction between sins of omission and commission. Commission is what you do. Omission is what you failed to do. All of that time that we failed to stand up for and protect the dignity and uphold the equality of African Americans. Uh, so this overture comes to the assembly floor, and it's hotly debated. And the primary argument against adopting this overture of confession of sin is that confession has to be personal. And how can I, I was born 1975, how can I admit to and sign off on a confession when I wasn't even alive during Jim Crow? Or, or so the line of reasoning went, you know. I, I wasn't there. I didn't do it. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. And what ended up happening is a number of the men in our denomination, pastors in our denomination, stood up on the floor of the General Assembly and said, Brothers, this is not how the Bible reasons. Uh, the, the Bible, look at Daniel 9, they said. Look at Nehemiah 1, they said. Daniel calls all of this my sin, my sin. And in verse 15, he says, We have sinned. We have done wickedly. He do you see what's happening? He recognizes his own complicity in what his fathers and his forefathers had done. Uh, this is why it's perfectly appropriate to apologize for the sins of your family, even if you didn't actually commit technically those sins. This is why it is appropriate to apologize for the sins of your nation, even though you may not have committed those actual sins. In fact, I know of several churches who, as part of their annual worship, spend a time confessing the sins of America to God and asking God's forgiveness. In other words, there is, the Bible places a high degree of emphasis on corporate solidarity. Um, in the Bible, there is an I and there is a, a we and that I and the we are very much intertwined. In America, there is an I and there is no we. Because <laughs> we, we stand, I mean, we're just individuals in isolation who stand on our own two legs. But that is not the reasoning of the scriptures. Um, I do want to introduce one important caution. In 1940, C.S. Lewis wrote an article article for a British newspaper entitled The Dangers of National Repentance. And his basic point in that article was we should be very careful when we apologize for something we disdain in somebody else. We should be very careful about apologizing for something about those other people that we really don't like. And we're, um, it's important to have solidarity with your family or with your church and with your nation. But it can easily turn into the sin of pride where we confess all the silly things our Neanderthal forefathers weren't smart enough to avoid and all the crimes our fellow citizens are not enlightened enough to denounce with us. Uh, that's what Lewis said to, to Britain at the time. And I think it's a, a very wise caution we have to be careful when confessing the sins that it is a true exercise in humility and not a grandstanding um, 
act of uh, self-congratulation. But there is such a thing as corporate solidarity with the people. And it's important to even realize this when we confess our sins on Sunday. I realize we will put a bunch of different sins that are enumerated in the confession of sin. You may not have, you may not have committed every one of those sins that are listed in our bulletin. But here's what I'm, I can guarantee you of. We have. We have. Because there's an us that matters very much to God. None of us are individuals in isolation from one one another. And I'm very pleased to say that we, as a church, did adopt that overture. And I have a copy of it on the back table if you'd like to read it. We, We confessed our sin of racism and have, over the last couple of years, really taken some incredible steps towards Racial reconciliation, that important gospel work. Um, One of the coolest things that's happened to PCA is we have had a real influx of African-American pastors and African-American parishioners and white and black churches coming together and being gray, (laughs) black, white, and gray and everything. Um, And I think that, you know, this overture, this confession of sin was instrumental in uh, having that take place. Secondly, look with me at the Alexander White quote that's found on the front of your bulletin. Alexander White was a Scottish pastor of uh, maybe the 18th century. And here he describes a key to prayer that I know that I often neglect. Starting in the second sentence, or no, at the end of the first sentence. He says, never fail, never neglect to do this. Never once shut your bodily eyes and bow your knees to begin to pray without at the same moment opening the eyes of your imagination to get a glimpse of the God whom you are addressing. Uh, I know that I pray a lot of prayers where I haven't fully taken into account who it is that I'm speaking to. Um, In fact, I, I would suggest that most of our prayers are that way. I mean, most of our prayers, we address God along the lines of, dear God, and we launch right into what we want to say. Or, hey God, and we launch right into what we want to say. We don't pause, even for just a second, and lift our eyes up to see, to catch a glimpse of the glory of God and see him and address him like Daniel does in verse 4. See how he says this in verse 4? Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Uh, All throughout the prayer, you hear him like he's talking to a magnificently big, amazing God, and he's aware of that fact. I'll never forget the first time I heard Neil Stewart, a seminary colleague of mine, pray. Neil was a, a physician, second career guy. He was, a, I think, a pediatrician, or maybe he was a general physician from Northern Ireland. So he has that great Northern Irish accent. The first time I ever prayed with him, um, he was like, Oh, Lord, you are so holy and righteous and magnificent. And, and you hold the stars in the palm of your hand. And, and, he, and as I listened to that man speak, I realized... You know something about God that I don't. 
Have you ever felt that when you've prayed with somebody else before? Just the way they, you know God in, in, in the fashion that I wish I, I knew God. And it's oftentimes captured by the way they address him. You know, perhaps this is something we should start doing in our petitions, that when you come to God, before you say, Lord, you lift your eyes up to see his glory. Then you recite his character. Instead of saying, dear God, you recount his awesome deeds. And then only after that do you then lay your concerns before him. Now, I don't want to set that up as a rule that you always have to follow. And truth be told, if you say, dear God, and you mean it, That's a whole lot better than a flowery, almighty, most holy, most beneficent ruler kind of prayer if you really mean it from your heart. But what we all need to do is catch a glimpse of God before we speak and acknowledge that he is great beyond belief. That is an essential ingredient that I find is missing in my prayers, and I think it's largely missing in yours. Thirdly, another thing that I see in Daniel that's missing in mine from time to time is the passion. You can tell that there is real passion in this prayer. Um, He, where is it? In verse 17, there is real earnestness. I find 17, 18, and 19 very interesting the way that he addresses God. This is kind of how he wraps up the end of his prayer. Verse 17, Now our God, he says, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear and open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your holy name. Verse 19, Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, do not delay. You know, how long has it been since you've prayed with that kind of earnestness. One of the greatest gifts that we can give to our children, of course, is for them to hear us praying passionate prayers. If you want your kids to grow up knowing that God is real, then don't pray perfunctory, colorless prayers that lack energy and earnestness. And on Sunday mornings, when you confess your sins, don't just read it aloud as though it's some rote repetition Uh, If you want them to know that God is real, um, then you you need to have that earnestness of spirit. I think part of our problem is we have such magnificent promises God has made. God has promised to listen to us and answer us. He has told us that if we ask, we will uh, receive. If we seek, we will find. He has told us that if we come in the name of his son, Jesus, that he, a gracious father, will, will, will listen to us. He's invited us to pray. And so we kind of take it for granted that God's just going to listen to me and that he will act as soon as I open my, my lips. But you notice with Daniel, Daniel had assurances too that God would answer Through Solomon, it was said that if you pray to the temple, if my people, he said in 1 Chronicles 7, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Daniel had plenty of promises in the Bible that told him God would listen to his prayers. But that didn't stop him from banging on the doors of heaven in earnestness and saying, hear me. 
listen to me. Open your eyes and see. Like the promises are not um, in conflict with passion. In fact, some of the Puritans, they would say that God is more likely to, to answer your prayers if you pray passionately and earnestly. That would be a good discussion for a community group. Is, what do you think of that? Is God more likely to answer you if you bang harder on the door? Verse 18. Verse 18 is the key verse. Let's read it together. Beginning halfway through the verse with the words we do. We do not, let's read it together, ready? (laughs) We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. And he goes on, Lord, for your sake, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. What is the reason Daniel asks God to answer this prayer? He asks them to forgive and rescue, not for our sake, but for yours. For the sake of your name, for the sake of of your glory. It's almost like he steals a page out of John Piper's playbook. <laughs> if you know John Piper, he's always about you know, the God-centeredness of God and the glory of God and appealing to the glory of God. For your sake, my God, do not delay. Um, and then Daniel says, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve this mercy. We're not worthy of rescue. Rather, we plead to you to forgive us based on the unmerited grace that you possess. Uh, just in a moment here, we're going to pray one of my favorite prayers at the Lord's table. Have anybody recognized the prayer of humble access? And you may not know it by that title, but we pray it from time to time here at All Saints. It was penned by Thomas Cramner, the author of the Anglican book of uh, Common Prayer, the Book of Common Prayer. And it's the, this prayer, it's the, uh, we do not presume to come to this, your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We plead your mercies, not our merit. And that is a kind of a perfect expression of the gospel, isn't it? We plead your mercies for the sake and glory of your name, not our own merit. And that is what we must always say. Let me conclude with this. I don't know if you have at present a difficult relationship going on, but one of the things that can really help a difficult relationship is when the difficult person comes to you and truly apologizes to you. Imagine somebody who has been giving you trouble coming and expressing something along these lines, saying, uh, I I just want to say to you that I've been really unfair lately. I've been difficult and selfish I've been unhelpful, I've been unkind, I've been wrong. I'm hoping that you will forgive me. I want from now on to be supportive, helpful, and kind. I really am sorry. It's not hard to love somebody who comes and talks to you in that way. It's almost as if they build a bridge to repair the fractured relationship. They, They build it almost all the way across the breach. 
And it's almost a small thing for you to seal the bridge and cause the friendship to really be reconstructed when they speak with that kind of honesty and that kind of transparency. And we don't hear that kind of language very often. We don't speak that kind of language very often because it's foreign to our pride to do it. And it's also increasingly foreign to the culture in which we live. You know, the humble, the truly humble apology is a dinosaur. It's so rare. I wonder if it's rare to God. Like, I, I truly wonder, when God surveys each human life, like, how many times a human being who has sinned against him numerous, numerous, hundreds, thousands of times, how many times a per- person has, like, truly, humbly apologized with no evasion? You notice with Daniel, he says, everything you've done to us, we have deserved no evasion, complete honesty. I wonder, does God hear those things very often from us? We say this here at All Saints, that the qualification for, for being a Christian is not if you're good enough, but if you're bad enough. And can you acknowledge your own badness that humbly and bluntly and honestly? Daniel doesn't speak and the apologies the world traffics in. He doesn't talk in terms of an error of judgment. He doesn't say, my wisdom was lacking, or I probably could have done better. Instead, he said, I am a rebel, and I plead your unmerited grace on my behalf. Friends, if you make a true and honest confession to God like that, trusting alone in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, no matter what you have done, No matter what you have done or how wretched you feel, you can lay your head down on the pillow tonight at peace, knowing that your sins are forgiven. God has heard your confession and forgiven you for his sake, for the sake of his son. For the God of justice is also the God of forgiveness and mercy. Standing on this side of the cross, we see that justice and mercy meet together in the Son And all who make humble and true confession find God to be just and good and true. Amen.